you, Sam. Appreciate it. It's good to be with you all. Um, do you believe what we just sang? How much he really loves us? You do know, I assume, that other than God, the most obviously unchangeable thing about life is that life is full of change, right? Have you noticed that? Life is always full of change. And uh, as a church, as Community Bible Church here, you get to experience a season of change. Um, it's the way life goes. This church has a wonderful history, uh, essentially a story that's been written for a long time and is not done yet. But chapters come and go, and a certain chapter has concluded, and a new chapter is about to be written, and you get to be a part of that. And I actually think that's a pretty wonderful thing. I, I want to say thank you to you. You have um, finished well with your pastor and his family. Thank you for blessing Dan and Aaron, for giving generously to them as a church, for loving them and thanking them for the way that they have invested here. Uh, if you're like me, um, you're feeling that they're moving on all too soon. And I have enjoyed my time with your pastor and his family and I'm sad to see them go, but excited to see what God has for them in the coming days. And as such, if our God is sovereign and good, do you think he is? If our God is sovereign and good, then he has a wonderful future journey for the Richter family. And correspondingly, he has a marvelous journey for Community Bible Church. As a matter of fact, it would be my hope, my prayer, and my absolute expectation that in spite of the many wonderful things we could talk about in the history of this church, that the very best days of what God wants to do in and through this church family are still to come. You believe that that can be possible? I actually do very, very much believe that that is not only the possibility, but the expectation. So what does this look like? We're going to walk a journey together. Uh, my wife Pam is here with me today. She and I have been a part of services like this, the first Sunday after a pastor moved on, over 75 times um, we have done this in the last uh, 11, 12 years. And over 75 times we have been a part of another service, a service that will come in a few weeks or months uh, in due time, a service where we all gather together and we welcome your new pastor. Whether it's someone you already know or someone who's gonna be a stranger to you, at some point we will have sensed the choice and favor of God and the leading of his Holy Spirit and we'll gather together and we will install your new pastor. We'll gather around his family and pray and commission them for the role that they have and we will rejoice because we will see the fingerprints of God all over the journey. And that'll be a really fun time. It's, it's about the most exciting part of my job that Pam and I get to do because we get to come and we get to celebrate and probably if you're a good church, we'll eat together then as well because these are the things that really matter in our lives. So that should be unchangeable as well, right? So the, um, I, I wanted to share a couple other thoughts with you about how we do this journey. First, can I just, if you'll all just raise your right hand. Can you just do that? Raise your right hand. And I do hereby solemnly deputize all of you as the prayer warriors for what God wants to do. God's going to do something incredible, but it seems like he connects the power of his work to the prayers of his people. So can I just say, I've done this over 75 times. I'm not smart enough to know exactly how this should unfold for you in finding your next pastor. I've met with your leadership team already. I'm gonna meet with them again at lunchtime today and future times as well. And they're a wonderful group of people. You have a good group of leaders at this church. You are blessed. But collectively, they're not smart enough to know how this should all unfold. But collectively, we can posture ourselves before God and pray for the work of his spirit that he will lead us in such a way that we will discern what he's doing and we will embrace it and we'll find great joy in seeing what he does. That's the journey we get to do together. I want to also mention to you that I, 
I've been around a lot of churches. I watch some churches make a really sad choice during these seasons. They seem to just kick back and in a little bit of trepidation and angst, just hope they can hang on for dear life until the new pastor shows up and gets set up and then they move forward. Can I just say to you that I actually think these days of transition can be days when you as a church can thrive, not merely survive. You do know that the church doesn't revolve around a person, right? It doesn't revolve around a pastor. The church revolves around Jesus Christ. And as such, though Pastor Dan is moving on to love on a new group of people and carry them to new places in their kingdom journey, we still have the exact same focus on Jesus Christ. And one of the greatest joys I get to watch is when people like you prayerfully step up to the plate. There's gifts God has given you. Maybe now's the time to step up. Maybe you haven't before. Or you need to keep doing what you're doing. Some of you are going to need to step up in new and unique ways to see what God will do. And you'll find that God is all-sufficient. And he will do wonderful things. And it, wouldn't it be fun if every Sunday during this transition time, for however long it takes, when you come together on Sunday, you have stories to share with each other of transformation of lives. Because you met somebody, you talked to somebody, somebody else did something, something happened in one of your and people were having their lives set free by Jesus Christ, and you don't have to wait for a new pastor to come to see that happen. Wouldn't it be wonderful to see how God reminds us that we are the body together, not simply certain leaders? And I actually believe you can thrive. I actually expect that you will. Um, I'll be praying for you during that part of the journey. Some of you might wonder, well, what's this whole transition look like? How do we decide and determine who's going to be our next pastor? There's actually in your bulletin an insert that we've put in there just to show you a little bit about how this goes. I'm not going to read through all of it. You're intelligent people and can do that. But can I just say a few thoughts about how this goes? You've already done one part. You've been generous to your pastor. You've blessed him. You've sent him on his way. You've essentially commissioned him to go to a new mission field. Thank you for that. We've already started as a leadership team to talk and do this. Here's how we do this and do it well, because I really want to do this well. Would you agree? Let's do this so well that we don't have to do it again for like another 20 years. Would that be all right? Okay, I'm all in agreement on that. And um, so it, I want to do this as fast as we can, but I, often I'll come to a service like this, you know, and people will walk up to me after the service and say, so can we have our new pastor like next week? And I won't know, probably not. As a matter of fact, it wouldn't even be healthy. It wouldn't even be the best. Um, we're all eager, but there's actually something good about us finding our dependence upon Jesus as a family together, of us as leadership team doing our due diligence. Even if sometimes we think we know exactly how it might unfold, it's worth taking the time so that at the end of the day, we know that we didn't just do what we thought was right. We actually heard from God. We actually obeyed his Holy Spirit. And at the end of the day, it wasn't that there was any railroad whistles, train whistles blowing. It was that we waited upon the Lord and did what he led us to do. We're already beginning that work. I want to thank you. Many of you helped fill out a survey on your church. You gave us your insights, your comments, and so forth. Uh, we're, I've read through it all this week. It was great. Cures my insomnia to read through these kind of things. Uh, I get to actually see a little bit about how you feel about your church. Actually, really was blessed to look at that. You'll get a chance to see some of that in the near future. We're going to work through it as a leadership team. Why do we do that? Well, because here's what I long for us to do as we prayerfully seek this heart of God. We're going to do a little bit of assessment. Where are we as a church? Where have we been? Where are we now? Where do we think God wants us to go next? What's that look like? Your input in a survey like that helps us immensely on that. Now I get to see, we all as a leadership team get to see how you view this church. Strengths, challenges, opportunities, whatever they might be. What does that lead us to? It leads us to the second thing, which is to start to build a profile. What kind of a pastor shepherd do we need for the next chapter of this story? And that depends a lot upon where we're at as a church and where we feel God's taking us next. So we need certain skill sets that God will raise up in a person. 
And so we build a profile and then we start to look at specific people. We don't start first with specific people. We first assess, we profile, and then we start interviewing and looking at people. We're already on that journey. That journey doesn't take years. It'll take weeks. It'll take us some time to work through that. It'll be well worth it to take some time. We may look at multiple people. It's actually good to have points of reference and comparison. It helps us to know who shines in certain ways and so forth. It'll allow us all of that journey together. At some point, your leadership team will bring to you a person on a weekend and say, here's who we think ought to likely be our next pastor, and you'll get to have a voice in that. As a matter of fact, your perspective will matter a whole lot. And ultimately, you'll give your voice to the leadership team as they wrestle to make the final decision on that. We will look at people who are potentially in-house. There may be people already a part of this ministry that are worth considering, whether they might be the person of God's choice. I don't know what's the opposite of in-house. Would it be out-house? We'll, we'll, look for, we'll look for people on the outside that maybe God has somebody like the Richters came five years ago, someone from the outside who we find who would actually be the good choice. We'll look at all those various options and see what God would do. If you have perspective on that, if you have recommendations for your leadership team, you're welcome to share them with me. You're welcome to share them with your elder board here. Share your thoughts. Um, we'll take that very seriously. If you have recommendations, you know that your next door neighbor has a nephew who would be a great pastor. Whatever. We're willing to hear that. Don't promise where it'll go, but we would welcome your insights as well as your prayers on that. And the leadership team of your church will keep you informed of the journey each step of the way so that you can be prayer partners and ultimately have a voice in how we land this thing. Would love to have that for us all together and uh, eager to see how we work on that one. All right, I'm gonna be around after this service a little bit and I'm glad to talk with you and help to answer any questions that you might have about that, all right? Um, and you can always talk to your leaders as well. Now, today I wanna actually take a little bit of time and can we look at the word together? And you'd be willing to do that with me. Uh, I want to actually talk a little bit about the journey that we're on here and use a story out of the Bible as a springboard for that. So I'm going to work through a story in 2 Kings chapter 3. So if you have a Bible, some of them are under some of the seats, you can, excuse me, you can grab a Bible and, um, uh, or open your phone and look that way. I'm going to read through a story and share a few thoughts. Now, I'm going to give you a warning as well, so lest you get really nervous and think that you're gonna miss lunch. Um, a lot of times a pastor will read through the scripture and then he'll do his message, his sermon, and walk through that all together. So I'm gonna start reading through this story and I'm gonna keep stopping and editorializing. It is the speaker's prerogative, right? And so I'm gonna do that a little bit and eventually you're gonna to start to get really fidgety because you're gonna go, he keeps stopping and talking about the story and he hasn't even finished reading the story and then if he's going to get done reading the story and then give us a message we're going to be here like for weeks and this is going to be a problem and the roast is going to burn and all these kind of things so i'm just going to lay your fears aside right now and tell you that actually the message is walking through the story when we get to the end of the story we'll be at the end of the message and you'll see a little bit about how that will work together and you can breathe deeply and it'll be okay, all right? So it's Second Kings chapter three. If you haven't found it already, Second Kings is right after First Kings in the Old Testament. And um, I'm here to help you on those things. It's actually, if you're about a third of the way through the Bible, you'll find First Second Samuel, First Second Kings, First Second Chronicles. It's right in there. Second Kings chapter three. And I'm gonna start reading at verse one and give you a little bit. You're gonna actually find out that geography and history are not so boring as you might have thought. Or maybe you'll find out that it is, and I'll never be invited back. So, um, verse 1. Joram, son of Ahab, became king of Israel in Samaria in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and he reigned 12 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, but not as his father and mother had done. He got rid of the sacred stone of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he clung to the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit, he did not turn from them. Pause number one, ready for this? Now, you go, 
who are these people, what are these places, and why do I care? All right, this, and the last question is the important one, right? Why do I care about all that? Well, let's first of all, I, I, I got a little map for you. See, you can see this. It mentioned the nation of Israel and Samaria as its capital city. Well, that's the blue country there. Samaria's right in the middle of it. It's in what we often call the Northern Kingdom. If you read through the Bible, there's actually, what starts as one kingdom becomes two. Let's backtrack a little bit. Here's Bible trivia for you. If you don't know this, you're still a wonderful person. It's not really that critically important in the scheme of eternity, but I'm going to find out whether you've learned some Bible trivia through your years. The first king of the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, the first king, his name was what? Saul. Saul was the first king. Saul started well, finished poorly. The second king of the nation of Israel was? David. Oh, now we're picking up some steam, all right? David, the most famous king of probably all time in the Bible, in the nation of Israel. Actually, Israel today still has the star of David on their flag, right? So David's the second king. The third king, his name? Solomon. Solomon, wisest person, richest person. Wisest other than the fact that he had 300 wives. But beyond that, he was a pretty decent, wise guy. And he comes to the end of his reign, and then the fourth king of the nation is who? All right, got, we got a winner back here. You get an all-expense-paid trip to Ontario. And um, the, his name is Rehoboam. Okay, you're close. You're in the park. I'm going to accept that. So, and, but I tend to get that whenever I ask that at places. We go, we know Saul. We know David, Solomon, and uh, uh, yeah, something. We don't really know much about him. What I will tell you is Rehoboam was not real brilliant, and there's a whole fun story to that. You can read it at some point. But the end of the story of Rehoboam is that the nation of Israel, one mighty nation under David and Solomon, is split into two. There's the northern part, which takes on a new leader. His name was Jeroboam. You saw his name in the story. Jeroboam was the first king of the north called Israel. The southern kingdom stayed under Rehoboam, Solomon's son. And actually, all the kings of the southern, the yellow part, we call it Judah, all those kings were of the line of David, the family of King David, all throughout their history. I should give you another little hint about this. The kings up in the blue in Israel, every single one of them was evil and godless. Without exception, every single one was a bad king. Some were worse than others. None of them was good. In the yellow, in Judah, the southern tribes, the southern kingdom, about a 50-50 split. About half of them were good and godly kings. About half of them were not. Jehoshaphat, who you saw his name in here, he, during this story, he's the king in the yellow. Jehoshaphat made some really boneheaded leadership moves, but in general, he was a good godly person. By the way, I like finding people who are generally godly, but make boneheaded choices in life because it actually is a mirror of my own, all right? So I like finding people It's like, oh, I can identify with that. I'm trying really hard to do the right thing, sometimes making mistakes. Well, that's Jehoshaphat. And then you have Joram, who becomes king up there in the blue. It mentions in the story already that Joram's not a great king. He's not a godly king. It mentioned his dad's name as Ahab. Now, here's another Bible trivia thing. So therefore, if his dad was named Ahab, his mother's name was? I heard someone say it, Jezebel. Jezebel. Ahab and Jezebel. Now, you've noticed, I want to be careful on this, has anybody here ever named their child Jezebel? Nobody has. So the, you don't know a Jezebel. You probably don't know an Ahab either. It's not very common. Um, Jezebel certainly. Because it's like, who would name their child that? Because Jezebel was about the most wicked woman in the whole Bible. Um, not a good story. Really fascinating, R-rated story of how her life ends. Uh, it's all kinds of interesting stuff that you find there in the Bible. So Joram grew up in a home that would fit every definition of dysfunctional, right? He grew up in a godless home. He had wealth and means. 
because he was the king's son, but everything else was godless and messed up. This is Joram's life. His dad dies, and Joram becomes king. Okay, now you got context. You with me so far? That's not too hard, right? Now, let's pick it up from there. Uh, we're down to next verse, verse 4, I think it is. Now, Mesha, king of Moab, raised sheep, and he had to pay the king of Israel, that would be Ahab, and now Joram, a tribute of 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. But after Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. So at that time, King Joram set out from Samaria and mobilized all Israel. And he also sent a message to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to fight against Moab? I will go with you, Jehoshaphat replied. I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. We'll pause there again. Now, what, what's happening here? So you see, you can see Moab is kind of to the southeast of Israel. Moab is a vassal nation. They're under the thumb of Israel. So they have to pay tax. They have to pay tribute. You, you'll remember in the history of our nation, we didn't really enjoy that very much, right? Led to what we call the Revolutionary War. You know, you've been to Boston, Tea Party thing, you know all that, right? That's kind of what Moab had to do to Israel for years. They didn't like it. They didn't like being in this forced treaty. They didn't like being in this forced taxation. They didn't want any of it. So if you want to get out from underneath the thumb of somebody, if you want to rebel, when's a good time to do it? During leadership transition, right? Now, please don't practice that here at church, okay? But I'm just saying, that would be the time. You go, Ahab's no longer there, new kids, he, new kids in the, in the throne, he's not really confident yet, not really sure what he's going to do, he might be really weak, he's not established, doesn't have the trust of everybody. Now's the good time to thumb our nose at him and go, take a hike, we're not doing it anymore. So, that's what they do. King of Moab says, not doing it anymore, and where does he send all of his soldiers? To the border, right? He's going to send them to that border. See Dibon there, that little city? He's going to send everybody to that border where Israel and Moab meet because he knows that they're not going to be happy for this. Now, if you're Joram, you're this young whippersnapper of a new king. You're a leader. You know that you need to prove yourself, right? Now, you didn't wish for this guy to rebel against you, but it also becomes the opportunity to prove that you are all that that you're actually this marvelous leader, you're going to show everybody that you're a good leader, a good general, a good king. You're going to not only be as good as your dad, you're going to be better than your dad. So Joram is going to rise to the occasion to prove himself. So he mobilizes all of his army, but he wants to actually stack the deck in his favor. So how is he going to stack the deck in his favor? Well, he goes to Jehoshaphat and he says, hey, Jehoshaphat, how about you come help me? I'm like having a problem here. And Jehoshaphat says, sure, I will do it. He just seems like he just flippantly says, I'm in. Let's go for it. And he makes an interesting statement. Jehoshaphat says, I'm as you are. My people are as you are, or your people are, or horses like you. He says, we're all the same. Now, we had to pause for a minute and ask ourselves, in what ways are they all the same? Well, they're all Jewish people, right? They're all Jewish people. So as such, all these people are the same bloodline, same family lines. Now, they've been fighting against each other. They don't really like each other, but they actually are related to each other. But beyond the racial part of it, there really are not many similarities. Ultimately, Joram and the people he's leading are a godless nation. They don't seek God's will. They don't want God to be a part of it. They do their own thing. They're selfish. They have their own gods and all that journey. Jehoshaphat is trying his best to be a godly king leading a nation in a godly way. So when Jehoshaphat says, hey, we're exactly the like, that's actually not a very accurate statement. Actually, he needed to have known a verse that's found in the New Testament book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, which wasn't written yet at his time which says that we ought to be careful not to be unequally yoked with those who don't have the same faith values as us. And Jehoshaphat failed to practice that. As a matter of fact, a little extra trivia for you, Jehoshaphat was a king for a long time. 
he actually did a partnership with Joram's dad, Ahab. It didn't go well for him. He did a partnership here with Joram. It doesn't go well for him. You'll see how. And he'll do a partnership with the next king after Joram, and it won't go well for him. You would think that eventually, you know, it's like, hello, McFly. Get it together, you know. You ought not to keep doing the same mistake over. Have any of you ever been guilty of doing the same mistake over? Like all the time? I, more than three times probably, at least in my life. As we're sometimes a little dense and slow to learn. But God was still gracious. You're going to see it even in this story. That God is gracious to his people even when sometimes they're a little dense and sometimes they keep making the same mistake over and over. Like me. And maybe like you. So Jehoshaphat says, yeah, we're all in. Then Jehoshaphat asks him a question. So what's the question? He says, I'm with you. My people are with you. My horse is with you. And then Jehoshaphat says, by what route shall we attack? He asked, through the desert of Edom, Joram answered. And now we realize that Joram is actually smarter than the average strategist. He actually has an interesting plan here. So what's Joram do? Where's the wilderness of Edom. Well, you see Edom down there in the south, right? By the way, Edom is under the thumb of Judah, just like Moab is under Israel. The king of Edom has to answer to, he's a forced treaty with Judah and Jehoshaphat. So therefore, if Jehoshaphat wants to go do something through Edom, he has permission to walk through his land because he's in charge. And he has permission, because of the forced treaty, to say to Edom and their army, you have to come help us. So what Joram wants to do is do an end run, because he knows all the army of Moab is there on that north border, ready for the attack. So he wants to come down and do an end run and come in from behind them, a surprise attack from the other side. He, he needs permission to go through two nations to do that. So if he gets Jehoshaphat to play ball, he gets that. And he picks up not only the army of Jehoshaphat, Judah, but also the army of Edom, the Edomites. He gets now three armies, his own plus the other two, and doing a surprise attack. He has thought this thing through. All right? See, geography actually can be important sometimes. But watch what happens. So... The king of Israel set out with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. And after a roundabout march of seven days, the army had no more water for themselves or for the animals that were with them. Well, this is one of these interesting moments. They went into the wilderness, and guess what's not found in abundance in the wilderness? Water. So they hadn't thought it through perfectly well. So now they've marched seven days. They're down into this kingdom of Edom, heading toward the place called the Nabudu tribes, as they want to come in on that side. And this is the place that they're at. And now they're out of water. Their animals are with them. Why did they take animals with them? Anybody know? Because they didn't have refrigeration. They didn't have sea rations. They didn't have, you know, MREs, if you're in the military, meals ready to eat. They actually had to take the livestock with them if they're going to eat especially in the wilderness. So now, the one thing they need desperately for all the soldiers and for their meals, the animals that are with them, is water. They're in the wilderness, there is no water. They've run out of water that they brought with them, and now they have a really, really big problem because they're about ready to have a fight, and yet they're dying of thirst. This is a big issue. You would think that maybe they'd have planned better. There just were not any 7-Elevens close by. Now, catch what Joram says. Joram says, what? What, exclaimed the king of Israel? Has the Lord called us three kings together only to deliver us into the hands of Moab? Now, I just need, some of you think that this Bible is a really serious book, and there certainly is. I just need to tell you that there's parts of it that are true comedy. This is one of them. Joram is a godless king. He doesn't believe in the word they would have had for God back then would be Yahweh, translated Jehovah. He doesn't believe in him. He doesn't believe he exists. He doesn't follow him. He doesn't obey him. He certainly didn't consult him before he went on this march. 
And they did this whole strategy that he's going to do. And so as soon as things get a little difficult, what does Joram do? Who does he blame? God. Have you noticed people like that on the world? Where they're not following God, they're not seeking God, but as soon as something goes a little bit sideways, they blame God. Have you noticed sometimes that the people of God do that as well? I don't know if you have, probably you're smarter than that, but maybe some people you know who proclaim to be followers of God still in the moment. Have, have you ever had that time? It's like you didn't study well, you failed the test, and then what do you do? It's like, I don't know why God let me fail the test. Well, maybe you should have actually studied. Or you didn't get the job because you got to the interview 20 minutes late, and then you blame God that you didn't get the job because maybe you should have been there on time. And we just have a natural human inclination to blame God before ever we'll look in the mirror and blame ourselves. That's what Joram does right here. He's like, we're in the wilderness. There's no water. Why would God do this to us? Isn't that what he does? And you're like, really? That's what goes through your mind? Why would do? Now, catch what Joshphat does at this moment. And this is fascinating too. But Joshphat asked, is there no prophet of the Lord through whom we may inquire of the Lord? Joshphat basically says, you know, this would probably be a good time to pray. You think? All right. Actually, Jehoshaphat should have prayed seven days ago. Right? He should have prayed before he said yes. He should have prayed before he joined in allegiance with this godless king. He should have prayed before he said, my army is the same as yours, let's go for it. He should have prayed all on the way. We don't find that he prayed at all until the moment of his greatest need. But whereas Joram wants to blame God, at least Jehoshaphat says, well, let's pray. Better late than never, right? Is that true of us as well? Have you ever had those moments where it's like, oh, yeah, probably should have prayed about this. You know, I'm actually like 17 steps down the trail. Probably should have prayed with God before I started this hike. But here I am. Better to turn to God late than never. And how gracious is our God that he actually is willing sometimes, often, always, to be the God who will love us in spite of what we've done, who will care for us in spite of what we've gotten ourselves into. So Joshua says, wait, let's pause and pray. And an officer of the king of Israel, the king of the northern tribes, the godless nation, Joram's close advisor. Who's going to be standing in the presence of the king? Only his closest advisors. So an officer of the king of Israel answered and said, well, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here. He used to pour water on the hands of Elijah. Well, what does that weird sentence mean? What it means is, the prophet Elisha is here. He was mentored by that well-known, very famous prophet, Elijah. That's what that phrase means. Now, this is a really, this suddenly becomes an awkward moment, okay? You think, this is all going really bizarrely, and it gets more bizarre by the moment. First of all, you have to ask yourself, why is the prophet Elisha in the middle of the wilderness where these armies are? Was he a chaplain for one of the armies? Had God directed him to go there? Was he vacationing near an oasis and sipping iced tea when suddenly they walked by? I don't know why he's there, but it's really intriguing that he is. So there he is, and one of the godless king's closest advisors says, oh, you know, you probably didn't know this king, but Elijah's here, Elisha is here. If, in case you don't remember, he was mentored by Elijah. Now, at that point, that guy, that officer is lucky he didn't get his head cut off. Why? Because if you would go back a few chapters, a number of stories, but the most famous one would be 1 Kings chapter 18. Elijah, the guy who mentored this Elisha, Elijah is the prophet, and he has made it not rain for three plus years because Ahab, Joram's dad, and the whole nation of Israel were so rebellious against God that under the direction of God's spirit, Elijah goes to the king and says, you know, it's not gonna rain for three years. It's just not. 
maybe you guys will realize that God's the real deal. At the end of that three years, they come together and they do this whole thing where Elijah says, hey, let's do a little trial. I'll pray, I'll put a sacrifice on this altar, I'll pray, and if fire comes down whoosh, from God, then, then we know this is the real God. You all, the prophets of your false gods, you pray, if fire comes down, and then that'll be that your God's the real one. And so all the people gather with King Ahab to watch this whole thing. And there's 400 prophets of Baal and 400 other prophets. And they're all there and they can't make fire come down from heaven. And then Elijah has water poured on the whole thing. He prays, whoosh, fire comes down from heaven. Not only does it take away the offering, the rocks are burned up. There's like this crater in the ground that happens at the end of it. And then... They go, and under uh, Elijah's leadership, they kill all these prophets of the false gods. So Ahab witnessed that happen. Didn't make Jezebel happy at all that this took place. Likely, I can guarantee you that Joram knew the story, but it's even distinctly possible that Joram, as a young man, had been with his dad and witnessed the whole thing. So now... One of his closest advisors says, hey, we should consult God like Jehoshaphat said. And the guy that your dad hated so much, he mentored a guy who's here. Maybe we can consult him. Like, really? That's a good plan? But Jehoshaphat jumps in right away before Joram can say anything. And Jehoshaphat says, oh, the word of the Lord's with him. Basically, he says, I saw him on the God channel. He's really good, okay? So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. And Elisha says to the king of Israel, why do you want to involve me? He's saying this to Joram. Why do you want to involve me? Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. This is a funny statement. He's like, why are you coming to consult me? You have all your own gods. You have all your own prophets and priests, your own pastors. Why don't you go to them? Why in the world would you come to me? Go to the prophets of your mom and dad. Oh, that's right. They're dead. Right? He killed them all already. Is They all died back in that story I just told you about. And so Elisha is having some fun with him. And he's like, I'm not doing this. Why do you even come to me? And catch what Joram says. No, the king of Israel answered, because it was the Lord who called us three kings together to deliver us into the hands of Moab. He is still going to hold to this story. None of you are this stubborn, right? None of us. But this is how stubborn he is. Elisha says, as surely as the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve, if I did not have respect for the presence of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, I would not pay attention to you. Now bring me a harpist. Now I find this odd. My, my kids as teenagers used to do this sometimes. They would say that we were random. This is random, okay? It's like, here, this is a story. This is a guy's story so far, right? We've got kings, we've got nations, we've got warfare, we've got intrigue, we've got treachery, we've got men's stuff and soldiers and weaponry and we're wilderness and people are, this is a guy's story at this point. And now here's this underdog prophet showing up in the midst of it. And he's like, I, he looks at the king. He's like, I wouldn't even talk to you if that other guy wasn't here. Could somebody bring me a harpist? That's funny, all right? That's really funny. Now, why does that happen? I can only speculate. But you're going to find in the next verses that while a harpist was playing, that Elisha heard the voice of God and knew what to do next. So you led us so well, you and the team, in worship this morning. We don't just do worship to fill space before a sermon. We don't just sing songs because it's a part of the order of a service. There seems to be an implication here. Um, it's just a story, I know. It's not a teaching point, but there could be other teaching points in Scripture I think would build this. That there's something about how music that's focused on God settles and centers our heart so that we can hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine, Elisha is standing in front of Joram in this wilderness. Joram's blaming God for something that's not God's fault. Joram's insisting on answers that he doesn't deserve to get. There's a history of 
Elisha's mentor with Joram's dad. There's all this stuff going on and there's probably just his pulse is racing, his blood pressure is going up. And he's like, before I tell you guys what, what I really want to say, I need to get away with God and just calm my heart before God and listen to his voice. I just want to encourage you as a church family, will you see your times of worship and music as just that, as a way where God will center you as a family together for the journey that he has for you to be on? And that then maybe you can hear his voice collectively a little better. By the way, I think that works probably privately and individually for you as well. There's times you need to just step out of the rat race of life and turn on the music and sing in your heart and hear what God will say as you lift him high in song. And it's what Elisha does here. And then Elisha comes back. Here's going to be key statement of the chapter. We're not going to go through this whole chapter. We're nearly done. Elisha says, bring me, bring me, uh, bring me a harpist. And while the harpist was playing, the hand of the Lord came on Elisha. And he said, he said then back to the kings, this is what the Lord says. I will fill this valley with pools of water. For this is what the Lord says. Catch how he keeps saying this is what the Lord says. This is what the Lord says. You will see neither wind nor rain, yet this valley will be filled with water. And you, your cattle, and your other animals will drink. Key sentence right here. This is an easy thing in the eyes of the Lord. This is an easy thing in the eyes of the Lord. He will also, he says, deliver Moab into your hands and you'll overthrow every fortified city and every major town. Let's stop there. I don't know what you're facing today. Some of you have massively huge burdens. Some of you carry the weight of so many heavy things either in your own life, some of it things that have been done to you that you didn't deserve, sometimes things that you actually brought upon yourself maybe a mix of all of that. I don't know what your family faces. I don't know what things are going on in your job. I don't know what's heavy on your heart today. For you as a church, I do know that at least you're facing a leadership transition. I don't know all the details of what else you as a church face as you long to bring glory to the king and the advancement of his kingdom here in this part of Mansfield and beyond. But I do know this. Whatever you face, however big it is, it is an easy thing in the eyes of the Lord. It's an easy thing in the eyes of the Lord. I'm not, I'm not saying your issue is unimportant, but I'm saying consider this. Consider tens of thousands. This isn't just a few hundred soldiers. Tens of thousands of soldiers dying of thirst in a wilderness with no hope of satisfying their need, soon to face a battle that was going to be an uphill battle anyway, and now they're weak as anything and starting to die off. I don't know that I can envision a greater challenge than that in what you and I might face. And if that was an easy thing for God, then how much more? whatever it is that you and I individually or collectively bring to the table each and every day. I don't know exactly how this went. If we read the rest of the story, you're gonna find this actually happens. They, they've now down by closer to that part of the Nabudu tribes, ready to come in the backside because they wanna have a surprise attack. So God tells them through the prophet, hey, I'm gonna fill the whole valley with water. You're gonna drink water and then you're gonna take care of the enemy. It's going to be fine. Well, here's what happens. First of all, the kingdom of Moab, they had their spies and stuff. They had their drones up in the air and all that stuff. And they, this idea of going through the wilderness to do a surprise attack from the backside was the worst kept secret in the Middle East. All right. And so the king of Moab already knew what they were doing. And he brought all of his soldiers down there to the southeast side, lined them all up, We'll find it in the rest of the chapter. We're not going to take time to read it, but it's all there. Lined them up. There's 
Israel, Judah, and Edom, they're lined up, now coming in from the southeast, heading back in. So, the sun rises in the morning from the east. During the night, water came and flowed into the valley. We don't know exactly where. Here's what I'm going to predict. I don't know this for sure. I'm just predicting that God caused some rainstorms to happen miles away. If you've been in desert and wilderness areas, you know that in a rainstorm, there's danger of flash floods. You can be miles away, and you didn't even know there was a storm over top of the other crests. And suddenly, water can come whipping through the canyons. Well, I think something similar to that's what God caused to happen. Water flows in the valley. They actually told all their soldiers. This is actually funny. This is really fun. The kings actually listen to Elisha. They go to their soldiers and they go, all right, here everybody, take those little, sol- those little shovels, you know those flippy shoulders, shovels that the soldiers have, and take it out and dig, dig ditches. They wanted all the soldiers to dig ditches because God said that rain, water is going to come into the valley. Can you imagine if you're a soldier? Okay? It's like, really? The kings, the commander-in-chief, they have sunstroke. These guys have completely lost their minds. We're nearly dying out here. We have not much of any energy left. We're going to have to fight a battle pretty soon in our weakened condition. And they want us to dig trenches and ditches in the sand and the dirt. Tell me that isn't the dumbest thing you've ever heard of in your life. And so catch this. How many of you, let me see a show of hands, how many of you have served in the United States military? Anybody here? Nobody in the room? The, oh, one back here, thank you. Thank you for your service. The, um, and I predict that, I'm sure that you never had a commanding officer that you doubted his wisdom and, and leadership, but sometimes in the military it might happen. Um, and it certainly happened here. Can you imagine being a soldier? But of course, the chain of command matters, right? And you obey your directive. Can you imagine these soldiers? Some of them, I predict that they all dug a ditch. Some of them probably put as minimal effort as possible into that. Why? Because it's a stupid idea. And they dug about a two-inch little ditch that's about three feet wide. That's it. And others obeyed, and they dug down. Here's the principle. Because When we obey human authority placed there by God, we're ultimately obeying God. Even if the human authority, like Joram, is ungodly. Even if the human authority, like Jehoshaphat, is unwise, though he's trying to be godly. Even still, they are placed there by God in authority. So, the degree to which they obeyed that authority is the degree to which they were blessed by God because the water came flowing through the valley. And if you had a two inch ditch, you only got two inches of water. If you dug a real ditch, you had more water than you could possibly handle. The degree to which you obey is the degree to which you will be blessed. It's a fascinating principle. You'll find it all throughout scripture. It's illustrated here in this story. So water comes into the valley. Now the nation of Moab, or they're looking through, the sun rises in the morning. Sun is red in the morning. There's probably some of the the clay and sand is reddish. Suddenly in a place where there's no water in the wilderness, the nation of Moab, the army of Moab, is looking out into the valleys where they know these three armies are, and all they see is the reflection of red liquid. And they come to the conclusion that it's blood. I mean, it can't be water. The only possible thing that makes sense is that these three idiot kings and their three armies couldn't get along and have fought against each other and killed each other. So the nation of Moab is like, huh, our work's done for us. And, and I just, it's not stated exactly. They do go running into the valley then. They probably set down their swords and shields. Why? Because they want the plunder. And so suddenly the nation of Moab is running up into this red liquid valley and there's these three kings and they're all drinking the water because they're so thirsty and they look up and here comes the enemy running at them largely without a plan and largely without weapons and here we find that God is a great multitasker 
God provides for their immediate need. If they don't get water really fast, they're dead. It doesn't matter about the big picture of nation against nation. It doesn't matter about armies. It doesn't matter about any battles. If they don't get water right now, they're done. That's their immediate need. But God provides for their immediate need. And at the same time, he provides for the big picture need. And they have a great victory over this opposing army. A victory that they didn't really deserve. God does that for us on the cross. He takes care of our immediate need, our salvation. We're, we're going to spend eternity in hell without Jesus. Our sins will just rip our lives apart. But he also takes care of the big picture, the journey of your whole life, the things that you'll face. God has the ability to, in one fell swoop, take care of what you face and what your church faces. It's an easy thing in the eyes of the Lord. That's how incredible our God is. And I just wanted to share that with you. We're going to close in song here in a minute. I just wanted to say, as we finish this journey, will you please remember, as a church, that whatever we face as a church family, it could be a really challenging situation, but it's an easy thing to handle in the eyes of the Lord. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness to us. We love you. We're honored to be a part of this journey. Lord, sometimes we're like Joram and we blame what we have to really own ourselves. We blame you for. Sometimes we're like Jehoshaphat. We don't pray until it's too late, um, but you still respond to us. Sometimes we're like Jehoshaphat and we get ourselves into situations that we shouldn't have agreed to, but we did, and there we are. And Lord, in, in spite of our stubbornness, in spite of our foolishness, you still love us. And you still come to bat for us. I'm so astounded by this. Lord, we don't deserve it, but I love you for it. And I'm so grateful that no matter what I face in my life, no matter what Community Bible Church faces in its journey, no matter what each of my friends in this room face in their pathway this week, it may seem insurmountable to us, but it is an easy thing in the eyes of the Lord. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.